So that's where we currently sit on the testing. Um, Gender-free, gender-fair, the standards are the same. Uh, and that's great, you know, for a quality, a quality opportunity, maybe not a quality of outcome. Um, we do see differences and we are a little bit more um, progressive with females in the infantry and, and the more demanding areas uh, that require the physical elements. But um, how that's going to pan out in the next five to 10 years with regards to musculoskeletal injuries, et cetera, I think will be interesting evidence for the British Army to assess um, as to whether we made the right call making the gender specific um, elements fair or not. And that's quite a controversial thing for us to, to approach. But I think that's something definitely that, that will highlight itself to us in the next five to 10 years. Hey, guys, welcome back to another week of Mops and Moes with Drew and Alex. Just a real quick uh, news bulletin. For those of you out there who have uh, not yet seen Rebel Moon on Netflix, uh, don't watch it because it sucks. I can't necessarily say don't watch it because it's almost entertaining how much it sucks. That's fair. It's bad. It's bad enough that you like watch it with somebody where you can talk about how bad it is while you're watching it. Yeah, and it's a shame because Zack Snyder he did 300, didn't he? Yeah. Maybe I was distracted in 300 by just like the glorious physiques and the abs. But no, like... I think I think he's been constrained by other people from going full Zack Snyder. And when he had entire editorial control of a movie, it was just so painfully Bad. predictable, predictable, derivative. It took like all the tropes from other sci-fi movies, but like none of what made them compelling. So it was just over and over stuff that was copied from other movies. So Charlie Hunnam, Hunnam, Hunnam? I don't know. Big fan, love Charlie. Guy Ritchie movies, he's a stalwart, does a fantastic job. But in this particular film, he decided that he wanted to do his favorite accent, which apparently is a Northern Irish accent. Uh, the accents and, are incredibly hilarious. Well, so here's the thing. The <laughs> here's the thing. The accent, he claims that his Northern Irish accent was so good in the original take that the American audience couldn't understand it. So they had to go back and redo all of his sound with a toned down version of the Northern Irish accent. What he did in that movie is a toned down version of the accent. It is horrible. And I say that having gone, when I was in graduate school in Scotland, one of the coaches I worked with was Northern Irish, couldn't understand a word he said. So I under, I get where he's coming from. However, Charlie Hunnam sounds horrible as a, as a intergalactic Belfast, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like a Belfast astronaut. So, um, a, a good friend of mine told me that the movie is effectively a bug's life. Uh, I would argue that that's probably a better film. So, if you want to, if you want to watch a good <laughs> film, go see a bug's life. Um, so anyway, in other news, um, today's episode, in today's episode, we are speaking with somebody from the UK, and, and I'll let you do the bio here in a second. But before we go down that road, I wanted to just throw out a few fun facts about the UK. And there's 10 of them. I'm not going to name all 10. We'll just go through a quick five. Let me see. Disclaimer for the audience. I don't know what any of these facts are. He doesn't are. know any of these. So I'm going to quiz you. How how much tea do British people drink in a day? Like uh, cumulatively, not one person. <laughs> Measured in bags cups. of tea? Measured in, in cups. Meters? How many, how many okay. cups of tea? Which I'm assuming is a teacup, not like a how, measure. How many people are there? Just guess. This is going to take forever. Just guess. I don't know. Several million. A hundred million cups. That's a lot of cups. Every day. They like tea. True or false? The queen. Well, this says the queen. 
you know, God rest your soul, uh, the king. True or false, the king has a passport. Just based on this being a fun fact, it's got to be unexpected. So I'm going to say false. The king does not false. have a passport. The king, you're right. The king does not have a passport. Passports are issued in the name of the king. Therefore, he doesn't have a passport. Uh, he also has really chunky fingers, if you guys haven't seen that. Um, are you looking at a picture of him holding the passport tea? he doesn't have? Why are you looking? Oh, it's T. I got it. Yeah. No, I'm not looking at a picture at all. But anybody who has seen King Charles? Yes. King We're Charles. deleting this because our guest will be offended by you not knowing the name of the king. That's, that's... <laughs> yeah. Well, he has chunky fingers. King Charles has chunky fingers, not our guest. Um, <laughs> here is another one. What is the national dish of England? Is it a pudding? I, I don't know. What is it? I don't like it's gonna it's being a pudding with a weird name. Black Forest something. I mean, you could argue this is a weird name. Maybe that might be a racist argument. Chicken tikka masala. Really? Yeah, dude. The the curry scene in the UK <laughs> is like fire. It is that's their national dish? Yeah. That's Wait a... for this one. So this is I know this because I went to school there, but you are not gonna guess this. The national animal of Scotland. National animal of Scotland. You will never know. I use this all the time. No one ever knows the answer. I mean, the, what's coming to mind is sheep. God, you're so wrong. <laughs> it's New Zealand. That's Scotland. New Zealand's national animal? I think there's more sheep in New Zealand than people. Okay. But I, I don't know. It. So national animal of Scotland. One more guess. Is it a bird of some kind? I don't know. Uh, it's a unicorn. What? Yeah, it's a unicorn. Seriously, that, that is a true... You can Google that as a real thing. National Animal of Scotland is a unicorn. Is this true in the Snapple fact sense of being true, or is this actually true? No, this is like side of a U-Haul trailer fact. The national <laughs> that, animal. It's not that much higher a bar. No, that's that. those are real. Those are real things. But no, it's. I remember looking this up. It has something to do with like mythology and, and fairies and something. They, okay. To be clear, Scotland acknowledges that the unicorn is not a real thing. Yeah. It also happens to be their national animal. I was um, thinking about this recently, though. What's... What seems more likely to be a real thing? A giraffe, which is like a giant horse with a super long neck and like crazy horns and stuff like that. Or a unicorn, which is just a horse with a horn. Like it seems like giraffes are way less likely than unicorns, but they're real and unicorns. I was going to say, I would counter that by saying giraffes are in fact real. Yeah. Uh, That's what I'm saying though. It's absurd. But, But the giraffe from an evolutionary standpoint has a long neck so that it can reach its food a horse sure. a horse has no evolutionary reason to have Just a defense stuff. mechanism an offense mechanism that'd be pretty useful have you seen a horse rear up on its hind legs i think it's doing just fine just kicks the sure. shit out of you but if if two horses are fighting and one has a unicorn horn who's going to win that's an evolutionary advantage i don't know i don't i don't know if a horse i don't know if you could headbutt a horse that's reared up and kicking you in the face i bet you could Needless to anyway. say, <laughs> um, I don't know if that was for, here's just a couple of more, a couple of more. Here's a couple more. Stamps originated in the UK. Not really a surprise there, I don't think. Uh, cheese rolling is a sport. There's actually a Netflix show on this and it's insane. They chase a block of cheese down a hill. Isn't it? Uh, it's not a block of cheese. It's a wheel it's a, it's of a cheese. Wheel. That's why it rolls. Yeah. Uh, and then this one, which actually I, I am... I don't like this because I am one of the few people I think that actually likes haggis, but haggis imports to the U.S. have been banned since the 70s. You can't actually buy haggis in the U.S. because something to do with the fact that it's stuffed in a sheep stomach and that's like illegal. But hmm. if you've not had haggis, 
Are, actually, you know, here's a transition. Today's guest has <laughs> undoubtedly eaten haggis before. <laughs> Who are we talking to today? Well, just as a as a brief preamble, this episode's been a long time coming. I know some followers of the page and the podcast have mentioned this to us. Um, we've been hoping to dive into how the British Army approaches fitness for a long time, um, including the fact that there are opportunities to make it a full-time job while you're in uniform, as well as some recent updates to their testing. So we finally got a qualified, fantastic guest um, with a, a accent that is on brand and not exaggerated like you would find in yeah. Rebel Moon. We didn't redub um, his audio. No, it, it came out perfect the first try. Um, so with that said, Warren Officer Second Class, Steve Turner, he joined the British Army at 16 years old, joining the Royal Signals. At the age of 19, he qualified as an all-arms physical training instructor, which is their additional duty type of PT role. So he's still full-time in his original job, but also has the job of delivering physical training, which he did for soldiers deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan at the height of the conflict, doing that from 2005 onwards. Alongside his PT delivery, Steve was a member of the Army boxing team for seven years, and got the opportunity to represent England on two occasions, winning both times. Uh, deciding to cut his boxing career short, he pursued a career in the Royal Army Physical Training Corps. So now he's moving to the full-time physical training job and completed that selection process in 2011. Since successfully completing the nine-month RIPTC instructor's course in 2012, he has spent the last decade assigned to multiple infantry and training establishment units, such as the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. Uh, and during that time, he has also delivered multiple physical training courses as an instructor at the Army School of Physical Training. With a thirst for constant development, Steve has also completed a bachelor's in strength and conditioning and a master's in applied sports psychology. And I won't dive down this rabbit hole quite yet because we do it sufficiently in the episode but I will note that there are a few terms that the British Army and the American Army share, but use differently. Um, for example, you might make certain assumptions that his rank is Warren Officer 2, but Warren Officer means a very different thing in the British Army. So we'll discuss some of that up front just to make sure it's all clear. I'll also point out, and please include the video in the show notes of the uh, the training montage, but... Oh yeah, good call. Arguably the British physical training seen as some of the most badass uh, tank tops I've certainly ever seen. And there are links you guys can use. You can Google these. You he can says buy. tank tops. He means uniform tank tops that you wear on duty as your outer garment. So yeah, we'll have, we'll have that link in there too. You guys can go and, and buy them if you want. I think that'd be kind of fun. Uh, maybe we'll, we should make a mops and mows slide into Alex's DMS. If you guys want us to create a mops and mows uh, stringer tank workout, <laughs> workout, t-shirt thing hold on um, chill out on encouraging people to slide to the dms for products i haven't even been able to keep up with selling stickers i can't get into the business until we figure out some workflow stuff you guys are interested in stickers slide into the dms i am again not ready for that i don't have the time <laughs> if you have any clue how to sell apparel slide into the dms maybe we'll bring you on board but no this was definitely a really fun episode again having been around the british military a little bit when I was uh, in school over there, it's fun to sort of go down some of these memory lanes with him and, and talk about the way that they have things set up. I would also argue, and we were actually saying this in the uh, the notes in the side as we were having these conversations, like despite 
a couple of shortfalls that he mentions, like the the British military has the whole PT MOS thing figured out. Like they're doing some really cool stuff. And it's interesting as we sit here with, with H2F and some other programs that the conventional U S militaries are standing up and they're sort of like scratching their heads, wondering like, Oh my God, like, how do we do this thing? It's like, well, these guys have got it pretty damn well figured out. Maybe we should talk to them. So hopefully this conversation inspires some of those conversations. Um, and certainly if you've made it this far in the introduction, you'll be on the edge of your seat uh, waiting to hear more. Before we launch into the episode, I do want to say if you are out there in the UK during this discussion, we discovered an exercise they have called shins to beam, which is astonishingly similar to a leg tuck. So if you want to be a founding member of shins to beam nation, we can do some co-branding work to reach beam. out. Shins to beam. It does. It sounds in true British fashion. It sounds so much more sophisticated. Uh, enjoy. Hey guys, before we kick this episode off, just wanted to give a quick plug to the two options that we have for folks interested in training with us. We have the team-based long and strong program. And then if you are interested in a more engaging, intensive, uh, more tailored option, we offer one-on-one coaching as well. And you can find both of those on the training tab of our website, mopsandmoes.com. And if it's the team training you're interested, click that link and you will find a one-week free trial. So again, if any of the things that we talk about on this podcast are interesting to you as far as training goes, head to the website like Alex just mentioned, select that training tab and follow the instructions from there. Enjoy the episode. So it's, um, it was quite funny listening to, your, um, to the Army Sergeant Major discussing changes uh, implemented around nutrition and certain things about, is it the tucks you call it, um, as one of the fitness test standards, like the knees to chest oh the leg tuck yeah the leg tuck God, um, don't get alex how... started on the leg tuck <laughs> yeah oh, it was quite you, you you one of you certainly got more passionate than the other about that if not both as passionate about the changes <laughs> that's alex's seen... mission now correct me if i'm wrong here i've watched some content from your instructor certification course and things like that it seems like the the uk army has an exercise i don't know what you call it but you hang from a beam yeah and do like a pull up yeah, there you go. Shin to beam. It. It's called the the colonial leg tuck, Alex. <laughs> so we have one called shins to beam where you, um, I, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this as we go through, you hang on an old school heave bar, so not like the beaver fit frames we see now, which are the round bars, you know, an old school wooden beam. Um, you will do three pull-ups, full extension, and it's almost like a, a dance routine. Um, and you have to pause at the bottom, pause at the top, chin above the bar, then you um, will slap the side of your body to pivot to then overgrasp. Then you'll do three mm-hmm. overgrasp and then you'll go shins to beam. You'll turn your head back, shins to beam three times, and then you'll come back over the bar. Um, so it's quite a um, a really controlled exercise, but something that means nothing. Um, nobody else really <laughs> does it. It's just very much a, a traditional thing that we do as part of the, the Royal Army Physical Training Corps. So um, I, I don't know if they still do it now. That's, heaven forbid someone can't do one. You have to get rid of it. Yeah, if you've got a video of that anywhere that you can send me, I would love to make sure, uh, like, I'll make some content about shins to beam so that Americans can go I'll, validate it. I'll have a scan. If not, I'll try and execute it for you and send it across. Oh, jeez. Speaking of uh, video content, I want to get this out there at the very top. Is there a way for Alex and I to get a hold of one of these white 
tank tops with the red, like with the, the quarter vest. the thing. Oh my god, that is the coolest PT outfit I've ever seen. I have I have to buy one. Is there a store we can go to? For, for listeners at home, he has stepped away from the camera. He is grabbing his tank top. There it is. Beautiful. Oh my God. How do I how do we get one of those without being British? I'll send you across um, an email website. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. There we go. I'm so excited. If we ever get around to making our own merchandise, we're doing a knockoff of that with the Mobs and Mos logo right there on the bottom. So <laughs> thank you. But um here, let's let's kick off with this because I know a, maybe a fair chunk of the beginning of this is just gonna be like explaining terms. I mean, the US military is full of its own acronyms, but yeah. can you explain your quartermaster, I'm I'm gonna say it wrong, so I'm just gonna let you do it. And then just kind of what does that mean in terms of like the broader military? I'll, Alex... I'll take a hack at this and I'll see you can tell me if I got this right or explain what I got wrong because I was confused about this initially. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a few things to clarify for our mostly American, mostly army audience here. Um, first off, your rank is warrant officer second class. Yeah, class two, warrant officer class two, yeah. Warrant officer class two. So that's an in the American army, warrant officer means like technical expert. You're neither an NCO nor an officer. You're in like a separate category of technical experts. And it goes from yeah. warrant officer one up to five. Okay. For you guys, it's very different. Warrant officers are the senior NCOs. And there's only two warrant officer ranks, class one and class two. Class one is higher ranking than class two. Yeah. Um, and warrant officers, loosely speaking, are the the equivalent of sergeant's major in our army except that in your army, SAR Major is a position or an appointment as opposed to a rank. Jesus. So, yeah, it's so there, it's, it's a rank. So we have, when you mentioned about the senior NCO um, pathway, so we have the junior NCOs, which will be Lance Corporal to Corporal, and then our senior NCO starts at Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant. Um, and then our warrant officers are Class 2, which is where I sit in the space of, and then Class 1, which is the senior rank as a soldier you you can achieve uh, in the British Army. So, um, and very much uh, a warrant officer can be very either technical. So we either sit in the space space of, um, you know, like my position in PT, um, you have a position in um, infrastructure. That, that's another warrant officer role that's very, you know, very demanding in a unit. Um, and then you have your sergeant majors, the traditional sergeant major you and I know of in both force that will manage a, you know, we call it a squadron or um, a battery, depending on on where you're um, located in what units and obviously their own isms. So if you're in the infantry, it will be a company that you manage. If you're in uh, the Royal Signals or the engineers, it will be a squadron. If you're in the artillery, it's a battery. So they have their own isms. But um, certainly my position is more of a technical so I don't sit in the space as a sergeant major to be this time, this place, although I certainly do do have those involvements. It's very much I'm an assurance umbrella, um, experienced and very much providing or ensuring that units are conducting training safely. So that's kind of where the space I, I, I sit in um, within the RAPTC, which is the Royal Army Physical Training Corps. So my my next question is when I was initially introduced to you, I was introduced to you as QMSI Turner. And yeah, if I'm not mistaken, that's your position rather than rank, and that's quartermaster sergeant instructor. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So um quartermaster sergeant instructor is is a really old term utilized for our us as a corps um within the PT domain. And that involvement is me as 
you know, the quartermaster element is me managing the facility. And then the sergeant instructor aspect is kind of the PT element, um, which is where the QMSI seats, uh, space sits in. So, you know, as as a general understanding, if I'm a staff sergeant, which would have been the, the rank below me, you sit in a position where you manage your one unit um, and that unit can be anything, can be infantry, signals, engineers, artillery, intelligence, etc. Um, and you manage that domain of about 300 people. As, as but an example, um, in my space, I sit in um, a training regiment with the Royal Artillery currently, um, and I manage a garrison facility that accommodates about three to 5,000 people. So anything that's got to do with um, safety, training delivery, infrastructure, PT delivery um, kind of sits in my space. So naturally, anything that goes wrong within the garrison of six units I sit in, <laughs> Every, everyone comes to me first, not the staff sergeants who are in charge of their own six units. I'm the one that gets it in the neck first, which is good fun. Well, and he still, it seems like you still find plenty of time to play really good golf too, based on your award. <laughs> it's part of the, part of the gift of joining the, uh, the, the physical training call. <laughs> God, see, I'm okay. Uh, I'm very jealous of that, but so I, I know part of where I, we want to steer this conversation, at least at the outset is, is just some familiarization and, H2F in the U.S. military has obviously become a huge thing. It's part of the reason we started this conversation, but kind of around the dialogue, maybe at a senior leadership level, when they were envisioning the role that that conventional soldiers would play in the H2F space, um, you know, historically it was like the MTF or the, sorry, the MFT, not the MTF, the MFT, the master fitness trainer. But I know in the British military, you guys have had, P PTIs, I think is the right acronym, right? Physical yeah. training instructor. You guys have had that as as a an MOS or whatever you want to call it for a really long time. Can you walk us through kind of an overview of what that is for you guys, that PTI role? Yeah. So, I mean, I can date this back as, as far as you need to. and Go know, back. Go I, way back. From, from a core perspective, we formed initially uh, in 1860 where we had um, 12 individuals that were selected to go to Oxford University and conduct a physical training course um, and they're known as the 12 apostles for us as the within the RAPTC and this was all divergent from the Crimean War and finding that um, you know during these these aspects physical training was a real real, real weakness for the British Army at that stage and something needed, needed to be developed so that's how we initially started and we emerged as a as a gymnastic staff um, and then you know during the first and second world wars we then became the um, army physical training board over time sort of in the 40s 50s 60s and we kind of had, had that embedded into the british army history and knowing that depending on where deployments we were going going to at the, at the those times we needed to ensure that soldiers were fit to fight um and, and you know that's quite some of the branding now fit to fight fight to fit ready to deploy at whatever moment's notice and so physical training instructors were embedded into the army uh, you know kind of from as early as since then, really. And, you know, us from a physical training corps perspective were placed in certain garrisons and locations, you know, way back when in, in, in the 19th and early 20th centuries to then train soldiers, you know, junior NCOs as physical training instructors um, and go off and do their thing. Um, and that's, you know, been maintained up to modern day. You know, our structure is very much aligned with um, somebody's interested in, in physical training. They've got a real passion for it. Obviously, hope there's a little bit of self-determination theory and motivation within that. 
and that they want to be PTs, you know, PTIs within within the Ministry of Defence uh, and British Army more specifically, because they want to help people, they want to develop them, etc. So mm. they'll come to us, as you mentioned earlier, at the Army School of Physical Training in Aldershot, which is, you know, sort of our, our birthplace um, at, and has been for, for generations. PTIs will come through there about 100 to 120 per course, and there's about four courses run a year. Um, and they'll conduct a nine-week course, and they're delivered by the Royal Army Physical Training Corps instructors. Um, and that could be somebody that's coming in, just, just a bit of a gym bunny, but wants to help people develop their own knowledge. And um, in nine weeks' time, they'll leave with that coveted cross swords, you know, the white vest, the red piping that you see. The one we're going to buy um, online. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and off they go into the field army, and they will work under somebody, you know, such as myself, a sergeant or a staff sergeant in a unit, um, and deliver physical training to that establishment, you know, and develop themselves further if they want to, but it's not their primary primary role. Mm. Um, there are allocations and job roles within the, the British Army that allow PTIs to go somewhere, just be a PTI for two years, three years perhaps, or three years is a little long, and those are mainly at the phase one basic training establishments and phase two establishments where people go through their trade training. But in the main, you know, they complete the nine-week course, they go back out to the field army to their respective units, and um, they could be involved with, you know, their initial job, which might be an infantry, might be a really mechanic, you know, a mechanic in the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers, might be a comms specialist in the Royal Signal. So they do that primarily, but they also have this qualification as being a PTI to deliver PT in a safe manner, um, you know, when the times are needed and, and requested upon. Mm -hmm. So... We're gonna we're gonna get to the next phase of this in a second because as you stated that's that nine week course gets you to the point where you are kind of a secondary duty physical training leader under yeah. somebody who's actually in the RAPTC. So first off, just to make sure you're clear on where we're coming from, the the U.S. Army the the total of what we offer in this space is a two week course that makes you ready to do it as a secondary responsibility as an additional duty, and then that's the end of the line right now. There's there's aspirations to model something kind of on what you guys have to like maybe get towards a full-time MOS or something like that, but that is not there yet. Nothing like that is in place. So I want to ask you about the next step, right? Because, and if I'm not mistaken, the next thing you do after that is apply to actually join the Royal Army Physical Training Corps. I'd love to hear a little bit about the selection process at that point. Like what do you have to have demonstrated before you can join? How selective is it? That kind of stuff. Yeah, of course. So, you know, it's very much um, very much on the individual. So you can imagine we have about four to 500 people every year that pass out as a physical training instructor after the nine-week course and go to the field army and do their thing. Now, a very select few of them want to come back and do, you know, my job and the career stream that you go through in, in the RAPTC. Um, and they run about, again, three, four, maybe five selections a year, depending on them. Um, you know, the capacity for people wanting to do the course and they'll run a selection process. Now, normally when this selection process is conducted, a minimum of 12 to 24 months of being a PTI is expected before you go. And there are some prerequisites you have to achieve before you also go. And that can be um, ranging from adventurous training qualifications. So you have to, you know, be compliant in basic qualifications in rock climbing, canoeing, kayaking, mountain biking. You know, there's a few in there um, that, that you must be competent in and, and have the prerequisite qualifications. So, you know, to even get to the start point of selection, 
we're, we're looking for a developed, well-rounded junior NCO. Um, you know, it has to be a minimum of a lance corporal, you know, and corporal as well. We do have some sergeants that go for the course. Um, and they will they will apply to join the RAPTC. And that is a one-week selection course. And normally you might get a number applying for the course between sort of 20, 25 to 30 that will apply for this one-week course. And at the end of that course, um, they might select in between the region of could be as low as five, could be as high as 10. Um, and, you know, so you, your chances are reasonable, but still not an absolute given, you know, provided that all 30 people on that course are really well prepared, extremely fit, extremely motivated, hungry to, to succeed. Um, and sometimes it, you, you, you really do see having been at the PT school and, and part of these selections, selection processes, you know, big fish, little pond syndrome, people coming in and feeling like, oh my God, I'm near the bottom third of this pack yet at my unit. I am, you know, I am number one. And that's the reason I'm here on this selection process. And that goes for any any case in point, right? And, and the US military is no exception for, for various courses. Like, the you know, the Navy SEALs could be one example for you guys. And, you know, SAS selection for us is another. So, you know, the, these are elite people in their fields that have a real um, quest for, for, for wanting to develop themselves and, and unfortunately might not make, make a cut. So at the end of that week, let's say they select 10 from that 30 and they'll be then be given a date to say, look, from anywhere to three months to nine or 12 months time, you're going to come back here and you will conduct a nine month course um, that will train you to go into the field army on your own as a Royal Army physical training constructor. So, you know, immediately you mentioned about the PT element from just being a physical training instructor with you guys for two weeks. We do that for nine. I know the US doesn't have a, uh, you know, physical training core or branch um, equivalent. So, you know, we then develop them people for another nine months to, you know, promote them. They will become senior NCOs. So they will leave as sergeants um, and go into the field army at, at certain locations. And mainly what the PT Corps would do is uh, you'd finish your nine month course and they'll send you to a phase one establishment where there are other RAPTCIs. So you've got somebody there to mentor you and develop you. Um, because the last thing we'd want to do is send somebody who's just done a nine-month course out into a unit on their own, make loads of mistakes potentially, and, and cause serious harm to people in, in that unit. And obviously, us as a, as a corporate image organisation. So, um, so that nine-month course consists of multiple aspects, and it develops them from a junior NCO to a senior NCO. And you really do see the change um, in the individuals. Having been an instructor there as a staff sergeant at the Army School of Physical Training, you know that was one of my jobs there for two years. And it was great to see that real change in development, giving them autonomy and um, to be able to prove to us that they are exactly what they've been seen during the selection week. And they are ready to go out and deploy, you know, and join the RAPTC, the coveted cross swords and crown. And we are one of the few selection processes in the army, you know, and you have the special forces, of course you do, which are kind of on another level, but the RAPTC is a selection process and a real tough one that, um, you know, physical training instructors really want to achieve that have a desire to join the RAPTC so um, you know I'll go into the nine month course and in essence multiple sporting qualifications are delivered so you know becoming a boxing official is one that's one we've tra traditionally maintained um, you know being a, a judge and time timekeeper is a massive one and there's a you know a full a massive passion for boxing myself and a background in the sport it's great to see that still maintained athletics coaching swimming coaching and um, we used to do judo. There was a little bit of fencing sort of in our in our history. So 
you know, being qualified in fencing was another traditional thing. Um, gymnastics was huge for us as well, but not so much now. We still do a type of gym agility. Um, and I don't know if you guys have seen, um, it's called the high horse display. Uh, we do it for our pass-off parades. Um, it, you'll find it on YouTube and it's sort of a three-way horse box. Uh, I did. I saw that in the in the hype video and I was too busy just like admiring the PT uniforms. But like the parkour, the <laughs> level of parkour was like, this is pretty legit. <laughs> yeah, it's well, uh, got a break no here. I'm going to bump in just to explain to the audience that when he says athletics for our American audience, he means track and field. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Meters, kilometers, athletics, gymnastics is all, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so those qualifications are, you know, are thrown into there. And the adventurous training ones I mentioned earlier, you know, kayaking, canoeing, mountain biking, rock climbing, et cetera, um, they are further developed. So they go in with a foundation level to, to attempt the selection. And then through the nine-month course, they then take on leadership um, qualifications in them. So they're competent at going out to their units after the nine months and delivering a bit of mountain biking to people as a bit of, you know, detox potentially from operations or um, to put people in stress via different means that are outside of the work environment. And, you know, adventurous training in the British Army is um, a massive positive when it comes to, you know, building team cohesion and testing limits for people, you know, someone that might have a fear of heights, taking them rock climbing and, and seeing them under potential stresses they never experienced before are also real positive. So, um, so they develop that in adventure training also. And obviously get taught a hell of a lot of content um, specific to physical training plans, um, auditing, you know, and making sure that we're compliant and conformant with policy and law, um, you know, military law when it comes to risk assessments, lesson plans, et cetera, um, and those type of aspects. So the course is enduring, but at the end of that nine-month period, it's um, it's a massive tick in the box and it feels great to see the guys and girls badging and, and obviously for those involved in it to pass off as well. I do want to ask a couple fast clarification questions. Uh, one, how many RAPTCIs and PTIs would you expect for how many soldiers? Like what's the ratio there in a normal army unit? And then after that, if you could just kind of give some people, give people some context on adventurous training, how much of that is there for the average soldier in the army? Yeah. Uh, so traditionally, I mean, we have a policy and I'm, I'm linking this back into a little bit of some of the points in your private previous, um, discussions and podcasts so they mentioned about an auditing process and i can't remember who it who the podcast you did it with and, and that there was no auditing process and uh, for the american army well, we have a really stringent one here in the british army um, good for you um, <laughs> one, of, one of the um and doctoring was another one around you know trying to find stuff uh to, to relate it to so you know traditionally one to 15 is is a great to have um how for pti two members delivering for pt that'd be amazing um, that that is not hit by us in the in the main yeah. and every raptc that you know would listen to this would go absolutely no chance yeah. um and we'd all probably agree like for example at my establishment we work to one to 60 um Ooh. which isn't great but unfortunately that's the constraint we work though. under yeah. yeah and the commanding officer takes on that risk understands it and we try and develop it so um you know in a unit traditionally you might have seven PTIs to 300 um but you will only have one RAPTCI that's it so you know when you badge into the PT core you are very much one of one wherever i go into a unit i am that one person that um that that very much represents and has to ensure that my PTIs are delivering things safely correctly etc um and to a good standard 
So yeah, that's that on the um, very much on the assurance front for for PT deliverers. Um, adventurous training throughout the British Army. Um, you know, we really try and push it as much as possible. But like most organisations, there there have been some cutbacks announced for us in the um, in the British Army very recently in the last six months, and that has come you know to fruition and impacted in such a way that the abilities and opportunities to get away are becoming a little bit more limited. Um, however, we can utilise something in our units called the forty eight hour rule. Uh, they call it unit authorised adventurous training. Um, and that means we can, on the Thursday afternoon, go right to the commanding officer. We are going to go out tomorrow on Friday, Friday afternoon. Um, we're going to do some hill walking um, or, you know, or wherever you might be, depending on your location, mountain biking, bit of rock climbing. And uh, we're going to source it through units, funds. We're going to source it through vehicles that we can book, mountain bikes we may have, canoes, kayaks, whatever it might be. And we're going to go out and do some AT this weekend. And I've got 10 people that I can offer this out to with my instructor tick, tick in the box and my ratios that I can deliver to is but an example um, and off you go so those type of things really do get pushed across um, adventurous training centres we have across the UK are also extremely busy you know multiple units sending soldiers officers etc um, to get qualified or just to go out there for the exposure and you know give the opportunity as part of part of the deal potentially of joining the british army and it's certainly sport as well was something 20 years ago you know when i first enlisted that you know you've got sport every wednesday that there was no quarrels about that it just happened um and it doesn't really happen anymore but um we're definitely part of the culture of keeping it alive and if it wasn't very much for the raptcs and units um unless you had somebody with a keen interest in at you know a senior officer that really enjoyed it it wouldn't get pushed as hard, let's put it that way. But um, it's still certainly a culture of, of our service, that's for sure. I just want to like, and Alex, maybe this is a question for you as prior service, because from where I have sat now for a number of years, most of that stuff, the adventurous type stuff, you know, I'm thinking like rock climbing and going out and doing things, it's, it's, it's kind of caged under the morale flag as opposed to the let's develop just sort of the mm -hmm. spirit of adventurous training. And then to take it a step further, most, if not all of that is like just outsourced to mm -hmm. like the civilian space. And so all of a sudden the funding becomes an issue, the planning, the timing, it sounds like on the British side, that's very much an internal thing. And you guys kind of handle that internally, which I think is, I don't know if there's a question there. It's just like, man, could you imagine if the American military just turned everybody loose to go, hill walking for the weekend first people would bitch and moan because it's the weekend and then secondly somebody would screw <laughs> with the funding and they would just have it all pulled but um i do want to ask and maybe this is specific to the nine-month course maybe the whole process in general but one of the things that we've hit on a number of times in this podcast is just sort of the maybe the conversation around lowering of standards because of of cultural pressures or what have you i mean with the with the recent um army combat fitness test, you could go all the way up to the congressional level and how those guys can influence things and change movements and standards because it's not going to be conducive to this population or that population. With as much history as you guys have baked into this whole process, has that has that come into play? Are, are you guys fighting that or is it just sort of expected that, hey, here's the standard and, and you've just got to meet it? I think um, we've recently changed or adop adopted a new process for our military testing our fitness testing and we used to have the pfa which used to be the personal fitness assessment um 
and it was more of a it wasn't a diagnostic tool it's very much a pass or fail even though it's considered an assessment um, and it used to be two minutes of press-ups best effort two minutes of sit-ups best effort and a mile and a half run and there were certain obviously standards to hit um, and the AFT the annual fitness test was an eight mile loaded march with you know the weights would vary the infantry might carry 30 kilos the royal signals might carry 15 kilos you know as as by examples um, and it would have to be done in two hours so they were the old fitness testing that you know didn't really focus in on the components of fitness um and this was readdressed probably in the early to mid um sort of tens you know 2010 2015 type type stage um and we utilized the rapTC at the time utilized the university uh to test and conduct what might be relevant for now here and now and you know operations in Iraq and Afghanistan certainly dictated that you know why did we need to run a mile and a half in 1030 if you're under 30 years old as a male but as a female you had to run it at 13 minutes yet you're both an Afghan I've got a female medic working with an infantry soldier the, the standards don't apply you you have to be as quick as the male mm-hmm. you have to carry the same weight as the male potentially um and it there were real gray areas there um and we've now we've now aligned our process with um the SCR the soldier conditioning review which is now more or less a diagnostic tool utilizing components of fitness to test explosive strength power speed agility balance um, and if you're deficient in some areas depending on the testing and I'm sure we can talk about that more in depth shortly mm-hmm. um, it gives you something to go away with um, and that's great but how specific is it to what we do uh, and that's an argument that um, you know our APTCIs continually have now with the RFT I mean that is our new um a new test that as good as designates you fit for purpose fit for job role specifically so the rfts the role fitness test soldier um comprises of multiple elements from a loaded march carrying particular weight and um, to a two kilometer best effort carrying a particular weight and a few representative military tasks so i think i heard on one of your previous podcasts you know a, ca- a casualty extraction, something as, as but one example. So we have that as one, um, a turret pull, you know, someone dragging someone out of a turret over the top of a tank, but as one example, leopard crawl, sprints, that type of thing, carrying jerry cans. So there's loads of representative military tasks. Now, that standard is now equaled across um, both genders. And regardless of um, what cap badge you are in, if you are in that particular cap badge, you all have to eat, meet that standard. Now, the infantry standard, the parachute regiment standard is, is higher than, you know, the logistic core or the intelligence core for, but for one, you know, uh, contrasting examples. So you might carry 30 kilo uh, if you're in the infantry for the four kilometers. And then for the two kilometer best effort, you might be carrying 25 kilo. If you're in the intelligence core, you might do that 4K carrying 20 kilo and then the 2K best effort wearing 10 or 15 kilo. So, you know, do I need my intelligence core or logistics core individual to be able to run as fast as an infantryman or woman? No, I don't. So the test kind of equates to that. And that's been the justification via, um, you know, the research and, and progress done with with the university, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the last decade. Mm-hmm. So that's where we currently sit on the testing. Um, gender free, gender fair, the standards are the same. Uh, and that's great. You know, for equality, a quality opportunity, maybe not a quality of outcome. Um, we do see differences and we are a little bit more um, progressive with females in the infantry and, and the more demanding areas uh, that require the physical elements. But um, 
how that's going to pan out in the next five to 10 years with regards to musculoskeletal injuries, etc. I think will be interesting evidence for the British Army to assess um, as to whether we made the right call making the gender-specific um, elements fair or not. And that's quite a controversial thing for us to to approach, but I think that's something definitely that, that will highlight itself to us in the next five to 10 years. I like your test better. Alex, I think we're a British military podcast now. I don't think we're going to be a US military podcast anymore. So it's fair. It's fair. Uh, happy, happy to, happy to, happy to be here. Anyway, back to you, Alex. I'm going to, I'm going to pull on the testing thread a little bit and I've got a document in front of me that I will put in the show notes for listeners. It's, it's from your ministry of defense website. And I want to make sure I've got this kind of yeah. straight in my head. Cause you got a few different assessments here. So there's, you've got role fitness test entry which yep. is what you take before you join the military to make sure you've achieved a level of fitness. Did you say the word role. royal? Roll. No, no why, just roll. Roll, okay. <laughs> just want to make sure. Your um, accent gets weird sometimes. Sorry. And then, uh, <laughs> so that test is pretty straightforward. Looks relatively similar to our OPAT. Um, seated, ball throw, uh, isometric mid-thigh pull, and a two-kilometer yes. run. And then at the end of basic training, you take essentially that test again, Plus, if you're if you're infantry or paratrooper or something like that, you also have a loaded march assessment at the end of basic yes. training as well. Then you move on to what you mentioned, the soldier conditioning review, and it's it's interesting how you guys have handled this one. You you basically got two separate tests: one that is like traditional gym based type of movements, and one that is much more obviously combat simulation type of stuff. And you you didn't try to mix those together; you kept them as two separate events. So the, the soldier conditioning review being the gym based one, broad jump, seated med ball throw, hex bar, deadlift, shuttle sprints, pull-ups, two kilometer run, um, looks an awful lot like our new army combat fitness test, um, in a lot of ways. And then the one we, that I think kind of plays more of the combat fitness test role for you guys is the one you were mentioning the role fitness test soldier. And that's uh, loaded March what's called fire and movement. So that's bounds and low crawl yeah. um, casualty drag. And I, I want to put this out there for our audience. S sled poles have been a topic of lots of discussion. We did a heavy sled pull in our master fitness trainer course. There's not a very heavy sled pull on the, the new ACFT. Their sled pull standard is a 110 kilogram bag hold 20 meters in 35 seconds. That's um, roughly math. 250 in freedom units. Yeah, roughly 250 pounds. He might have an issue with the freedom units line there. We'll see. <laughs> I, I had to sneak that in once. You got to. Roughly double it and a little bit more. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, Jerry can carry um, vehicle Kazavak, which I think is pretty cool. You like you stand on boxes and you pull yeah. a rope attached to weights below you. So you have to lift up 70 kilograms, 150, roughly 155 in freedom units. Yeah. Um, and you hold it for three seconds. That's the that's the vehicle Kazavak simulation. And then a repeated lift and carry where you're picking up 45 pound sandbags 20 times and moving all of them 30 meters. Are these pass these are these are pass fail? Pass fail only. Yeah. Do you have like senior leaders hunched over PowerPoints critiquing you for red, yellow, green based on performance for these tests? Just out of curiosity. So in essence, so where I work in a phase two establishment, which is mm -hmm. trade training. So when you mention about the basic, uh, the RFT BT, and you mentioned about the mid thigh pull and the 2K effort um, and the med ball throw, I then have to go from those conducting that, going on leave, having a bit of a break, you know, preparing for the pass off parade. I'm probably talking about six week delta before they then come to me. 
and have to achieve the standard for the RFTS soldier to pass and go into the field army um, in about six to eight weeks. And it's a massive delta that, that we're having to deal with to try and get people to that standard. Um, it's getting better. And COVID was a massive issue for, for us with this. Um, you know, I was getting people initially in my previous job with the Royal Signals and um, doing the same role as a QMSI. And I would have a 48 kilo female um, who has not carried any weight of significance. Um, and in 12 weeks time, I need to get her passing, you know, the standard you're talking about there, carrying, you know, a 225, 230 pound dead weight bag um, backwards uh, uh, over a certain distance over a certain time after doing the 4K with X amount of weight on that she hasn't had exposure to in basic training because, you know, of the limitations with COVID. So we're kind of getting there on that. Um, if you don't meet the standard, so where I'm at now in phase two, the uh, phase two establishment, if you don't meet the standard, you don't you don't go to the, the field army. You, you sit with us until you pass. And if you don't pass, the commanding officer has every right to service your discharge and go, you're not fit for service. Um, so accountability for us from an RAPTC perspective, we feel really well supported um, in that if a standard is met, of course, the British Army invests a lot of money in the individuals through basic training and trade training. Um, so but we want to employ them. We want people in the service. We want people to, to add their value. And I, I've no doubt they have loads of potential and value to add because it's not all about physical fitness. Um, but as a passionate advocate for physical physical fitness, it's also, also crucial that you're able to do or meet that employment standard. So um, are commanders getting rid of people? I think there are. Um, I wouldn't be able to put my hand hand on my heart for sure and say that, but I have no doubt that, you know, particularly in more teeth arm and punchier units, if the standard isn't being met, people are held to account. And we have a formal warning process in the British Army. So if you don't meet it, you get put on a three-month warning order. Um, and if you don't achieve it in three months, it gets re-evaluated and then, you know, decision can be made. Not fit for service and out you go. But um, certainly within my domain, within a phase two establishment, you know, taking them after basic training, um, teaching them all their trade relevant stuff before sending them to the field army. If they don't meet it, you know, the commander is very much, you know, they stay until they pass because they need to pass, um, mm -hmm. which I think is a real positive for us. Mm -hmm. So this, this sounds like, this sounds a lot like some stuff we went through a couple years ago and there's a good chance you don't have an answer to this question, but I got to ask it just to, just to get an idea of where you guys are at. When, when data started leaking out about failure rates on our new test, that's when leadership not necessarily uniformed leadership, but like congressional level leadership, I think started getting a little bit of cold feet about enforcing this new standard. And there wasn't, there wasn't really the ramp up time given necessary for like a culture to adjust to new expectations. It just kind of dialed back what was required. So do you have any idea about what the failure rates look like and, or are, is anybody out there worried about the, the failure rate basically? I can, um, we experience failure rates like everybody does. There, there are a minor, minority that don't make it. Um, we simply provide that evidence um, and give our, you know, cons consult to to commanders and explain why it might not be meeting being met um, and the reasons and constraints for that. Now it's then up to the commander, and I certainly have experienced this in my past, um, not where I am now, but in a previous unit where, you know, my commander at the time would accept training deficiencies. And say, look, this individual might not meet the standard here because of 
you know, and here's, here's a rough example. I've got a 17 year old female who weighs X amount, really struggles with the weight. But when she develops as an adult, um, you know, and grows a little bit stronger and becomes a little bit more sustained with the testing, I'm sure she'll be fine. And we don't want to injure these people when they've had so much money plowed into them. Now, of course, you can question, uh, you know, the levels of command there and and debate whether that's the right thing to do morally or not. But again, it comes down to that aspect of, in particular, niche trades. And, you know, I won't talk about the teeth arms as much because I'm sure the teeth arms, you know, the infantry, the parachute regiment, et cetera, are a lot more stern with this than perhaps some of the cores might be. We have the technical trades, you know, in logistics, intelligence, et cetera. Do I need my intelligence soldier who sits deep, deep behind enemy lines to, you know, give some type of comparison on operations to be out carrying this type of weight when they are a technical whiz kid that are unable to do X, Y, and Z um, and would be an asset if we lost them because they're not physically capable of of meeting their standards. Now, you know, we could debate about that for hours, um, but there certainly are elements. And I've been at, at one particular unit and I won't mention, won't mention who they are because it would be really unfair, um, that were very much, particularly within the UK and overseas, one of the most pinnacle of trade groups. Um, and when it came to some of them not meeting the physical employment standard uh, as it was then before the RFT came in, the commander was not interested whatsoever in, in getting rid of people um, and discharging them from service. And, and I got it. It was really hard for me to swallow because it was <laughs> my passion and job. Um, and I wanted to hold people to account because uh, suddenly, you know, you've lost, we've lost our integrity slightly here. Um, and, we're, we're, you know, that's probably one of the, the key parts of our values and standards, I would say, is integrity. As soon as you lose that trust and people don't have the faith in you to, can, to stick to your convictions, um, you, you, very, you, you can very quickly lose, uh, lose your people. Um, and I certainly felt that impact in this particular unit. But at the same time, you know, watching how, you know, they were, they were operational readiness every day um, in something a little bit more bespoke than just military stuff. And uh, I, I had to just turn to the right and, okay, cool, not a problem. Um, so, so got it, but I had to take it with a pinch of salt. And there was nothing I could really do about that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a real... It's a real catch-22. It really is, especially when these technical trades come in and, you know, we've invested so much money in people. What's right and wrong? Um, and that's left to the commanders to make on our consult and guidance, of course. But um, it, it sits well above my space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a, a piece of that conversation that's missing sometimes that I think about a lot because I think there are people who interpret, like, raising the standards as an affront to soldiers, like asking more of them, demanding more of them, and then lowering standards as a favor to soldiers, which I don't think that's... Frankly, in my opinion, and I know I'm biased on this one, I don't think that's an accurate interpretation of what's going on because if we if we lower standards and allow less than we know what's necessary to keep people safe in the situations we're going to put them in inevitably, whether that's doing their job or combat, I think a lowering of standards is actually a disservice to the soldier because you're putting them in a situation down the line that you failed to prepare them for when you were able to enforce standards in a safer environment. But yeah, I agree. And I think it is. it's a generational cultural change, isn't it? And things naturally dynamically change over over decades. Um, I have no doubt if you were a part of the parachute regiment or the infantry in the British Army in particular, if you didn't meet the standard, you'd be gone. Absolutely. Um, and having been served part, you know, as an RAPTCI in an infantry battalion before this test had come in, um, literally just before this test had come in, when it was still the old eight miler, we used to do the, the AFT. You know, if people didn't meet the standard, it was 
you know, pretty embarrassing. And commanders made a point of highlighting these people out and telling them, get a grip. You know, you are an infantry soldier. This is your bread and butter. And before anything else, you're a soldier first. Um, whereas in the more technical corps and units, you know, it, it's it's viewed upon a little bit differently. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I 100% agree. There's, um, and, and to be fair, I don't think the RFT has raised our standards. I think it's given us a... Um, I think it's given us a place where we're trying to make it specific for role. Um, and the standards are pretty acceptable across the specific roles that require, you know, the standard needed to hit them to do their jobs. Um, I don't think it's unfair. Um, I think it's certainly achievable. But um, naturally, there are, you know, I use this analogy. I spent 95% of my time on the bottom 5% in my unit. You know, it's, it's the way it goes. Uh, and that's absolutely fine. It's part and parcel of the job when it comes to dealing with the PT domain. Um but then it's up to my experience, my exposure, my qualifications uh, and working in conjunction with other people to try and get them to that position to be able to pass. I, I want to, <clears throat> maybe this is a bit of a rambling monologue to give some context to this next question, but it's something that we've touched on now a number of times with a number of guests at a number of different levels. And that is that is the role of fitness as a leadership development tool for NCOs. And and there might be sort of a tangential conversation about embedded civilian subject matter experts. And maybe we get into a little bit of that, but like, I'm curious because, and if you've listened to some of the previous episodes, especially with the Sergeant Major, we asked this directly where the biggest um, point of contention, I think right now with the U S military and specifically the army, when we look at putting strength and conditioning specialists into units to basically serve as kind of you guys's subject matter expert equivalent for physical training, they are up against this entrenched mindset of, oh, well, NCOs have to be in charge of PT because it's a leadership development tool. And they, they don't want that to be taken away from the NCO. And in a lot of cases, that NCO might not actually be trained in any way, shape, or form to deliver PT. It's just a hobby that they enjoy. And hey, fine, you plan the thing and we'll just call it a leadership development tool. And away we go. And then the, you know, the graduate level strength coach is just sitting there like, I'll just, you know, twiddle my thumbs. So I I say all that to get back to the original point, which is what, what role does, does PT play in that kind of quote unquote leadership development conversation for you guys? Um, I think for our deliverers, it gives them a massive exposure. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for my, my junior NCO PTIs, you know, I only have two that work with me. In my previous job, I had six military and seven civil servants um, PT. So, you know, it was a massive footprint that we had in my in my last job. Um, and I should have double, if not triple, what I do in my current unit. But their opportunities in developing leadership is massive. Um, what does it do in the field army? You know, outside of the phase two establishment that I currently sit in, I think it offers a lot of opportunity. So, you know, what I want to see in individuals, and we might conduct particular PT sessions, and let's just say it's a, it's a log or stretcher race, it's but one idea and concept. You know, we will theme that very much about, um, okay, this session is going to be about developing the junior NCOs and the private soldiers. Um, so senior NCOs and officers, you, you're going to shut up for the next hour. You're not going to say a word. You're going to do as you're told. You're going to fall in line and listen. Listen to these individuals. Um, and follow their lead with regards to leadership. Um, and, and they'll absolutely do that and embrace it. Um, and sometimes we'll create leaderless tasks and just see who comes to the forefront or we'll nominate and delegate, right? You two, IC, two IC, go. Dominic, get us from here to here. 
show me your capacity, show me your capability. Um, so PT is certainly a fundamental for that. And I think the massive thing for us is resilience. You know, testing resilience through via the means of PT is huge and critical because a lot of the soldiers we have coming through our door haven't had that exposure to any type of resilience, potentially. Um, and, you know, we, similar to, to you guys across, across the pond, you know, we recruit from Nepal, Fiji, you know, countries in Africa, our, our, the, the Commonwealth mm -hmm. um, aspect that we recruit from. There are so many diverse backgrounds and experiences that, you know, developing that resilience is key and pertinent. And, um, you know, we see the same trends in certain populations and demographics. So we know that's coming before it's even started. So we know through our experiences how to develop that, um, the areas of weaknesses, areas of strength. But I want to give them autonomy. If you want to develop yourself and become a leader, show me. Let me provide you. Let me provide you the screen to show me what you what you have and the capacity to do it. Some will wilt away under the pressure, fight or flight, and some will go into that um, fight method and go okay and embrace it. And you see, in the blink of an eye, a snap of somebody change and go, hey, this this kid. And I use that term, you know, really because I'm old, <laughs> um, really politely. You know, this kid has got something about them. Like, how great was that? What what leadership they showed given their their exposure, you know, two to three years in, in the service. Um, and they told, you know, they made, made command decisions. They embraced telling people and leading. Um, so, so, you know, leadership as a tool for PT for us is absolutely huge. Um, and it's something that we really do try and develop as well. Um, and not just through, you know, the guys and girls out in it, you know, that just experience PT, our PTI deliverers as well, you know, I want you to show me something, deliver something on this. I want something different. Provide the autonomy. I want you to feel competent. And, you know, we talk a lot about basic psychological needs of an individual. If I can ensure that I'm providing autonomy, competence, um, and they can feel related in the environment, then great. They're going to want to come to work every day. They're absolutely going to want to come and work in our environment, in our establishment. And I often pitch it to the phase two soldiers. Hey, look, I'm a salesman. I'm a PT salesman. We teach you things over a six to eight to 12 week period that are mandated lessons Monday to Friday every week. That program is set and it's not budging. I want to sell it to you because I want you to come back in your own time. Mm. I want you to leave here after this experience and go, you know what? PT was quite fun. I actually learned a hell of a lot. I developed physically, mentally with my you know resilience, confidence, whatever it might be. And I want them back into the establishment in their own time and developing that. So, so that's kind of, my pitch from an RAPTC perspective and and trying to flip the modality of do as you're told right here right now do this do that uh, let me give you a, an opportunity to develop something I want you back and I want you to take it further I'll give you the autonomy I don't want to be able to dictate to you as a instructor um, I want to enable education via coaching and mentoring to, to get you back in and develop it further because it's a culture shift if somebody doesn't want to do something in the first year, at year 20, what's to say they're going to continue on that same pattern if, if I haven't sold it enough? I, it needs to be ingrained in them uh, and they have to have that self-determination to want to do it. I mean, it sounds like, and granted, I'm, I'm kind of painting this with a broad brush, but it, it sounds like physical training for you guys is sort of embedded into the fabric of a lot of the development, a lot of the the culture, a lot of the, like you just mentioned, sort of the leadership. And I, I think the American military would probably say the same thing, but then at the same time, you know, on any given day, you walk around any given military installation and it's generally 
a fight between the senior ranking NCOs to figure out which CrossFit wad they're going to do or, you know, which deck of cards work out. Do, do you guys, I mean, just quickly out of curiosity, I mean, is that kind of what day-to-day PT looks like for you guys? Is it, is it a much more coordinated kind of like, you know, tradition driven experience? I don't know if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and again, listen to someone of your pro- prior podcasts about the way your PT is delivered. I, I found it almost, it's almost incensed to think, is this really how it's conducted there? <laughs> um, you know, we, we are very much, and certainly in my, my establishment where we are, we work to a program that is um, a progressive PT program. You know, it's periodized. There are periods where we deload and we prepare them for testing. Um, so it's extremely structured and it's well-structured. Um, and currently we're working with um, the labeled the edge team or there is a num- there are a number of edge teams working in the British Army that have, you know, a lot of um, experts in their fields around sleep, nutrition, S&C, etc. Um, and I'm working with one of them currently in my location. So I feel really fortunate to be able to do that, having just completed a, a master's in sports psych. And putting that information and my experience within a military context in my job to those guys with their backgrounds and experience as well. You know, on week one, day one, week one, you are tested. Mm-hmm. I've got a metric straight away to know where you're at. And that program every day, you come in, you know exactly what you're doing. There's no, are oh, we going to make this up as we go and we're going to conduct this uh, because that's how accidents happen. Oh my um, God. What? No. <laughs> we, you know, we generally in the military, you know, risk assessment processes are huge for us. And certainly in my field, um, if one of my instructors conducts something that wasn't part of the risk assessment or lesson plan, I'm asking them why and I'm holding them to account immediately. And if they get away with it and something doesn't go wrong, cool. You didn't get burned. But tomorrow you might. And that getting burned might be a heat stress casualty or might be a, a limb break. I mean, someone's going to have to be discharged. And I could tell you stories for days about things that people haven't. And you'll have your own exposure, obviously, being military, is, uh, you know, your military experiences yourself, about things that were a little bit rogue and shouldn't have been done and could have absolutely been controlled. Um, and that's where my job sits. So, <laughs> you know, we are completely and utterly periodized by a program. And, and you know, with force, the RAPTC enforces that. It used to be a little bit. You know, if I was into weights, weight training, if I was a PT core guy in one unit, everyone would get a massive. Mm-hmm. If I was a runner, everyone would be getting fit running. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we've kind of caveated that and gone, look, we need to, we talk about the soldier athlete. And I know that's a term that, that's utilized quite a lot around a lot of, you know, a lot oh, of yes. populations. So, you know, define that. But that's another topic for another day. I think, um, you know, trying to work on the components of fitness developing them as best as we can and that's why the army physical training system that is utilized this is our periodized programming that has been forced out and works differently for every unit one cap doesn't fit all and it enables us to do it safe and rather than having a soldier that's just good at running or good at loaded marches and rubbish at mobility flexibility strength power etc we've kind of reframed that and there's a more holistic approach and everybody's kind of good at everything and if you've got an interest in marathon running You'll be kind of good at every, everything, but really good at endurance-based, you know, aerobic training, um, rather than old money, just really good at aerobic training because you're a runner and rubbish at strength, rubbish at power, rubbish at diver, you know, anything else. So um, I, I think we're pitching it right, and we're certainly in a better place when it comes to structure than I think um, your, the experiences are in the U.S. Army currently. You mentioned the Edge team, and I was connected to you through Cameron from that team. Yeah. I would, I just love to hear a little bit about 
what, because there's nothing as far as I could tell online yet publicly about like what the edge team is and what they do. I'd love to hear a little bit about what that looks like top and secret, how that's Alex. getting integrated. Their top secret. Top secret edge. Um, so edge are, and it's quite funny. I was um, in uh, our army HQ, um, which is located down here in the South of England with um, our PT core hierarchy um, a, a couple of weeks back with the edge team. And it was very much along the lines of what are you guys doing? You know, it, it's pushed from our, from the absolute top of the British army, this edge edge approach. Um, and one of the teams has been sent with us at phase two. I believe one is with a phase one basic training establishment. Um, another team are with a infantry unit and we're just finding out various bits and bobs and research. And they've been working with us, uh, and, you know, collaboratively with Cameron and the team. Uh, and we've got a really good group, group of guys where, where I'm located. Um, and we're bouncing off each other ideas all the time. And we're not just looking at PT, we're looking at nutrition, you know, and, and one of the discussions with your um, army SART major. Um, getting them into our cookhouse, your equivalent, I can't remember the terminology, I, I jotted it down earlier on, you know, eating correctly, what are the contracts like to enable them to eat the correct food? Are they getting the right, right amount of proteins, carbohydrates for for what they're paying? And if they're not utilising that, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative for us is a is a spa shop. And I don't know if you have the spa in the US, but, you know, like a 7-Eleven would be your equivalent. Okay, go in there and feed yourself. Well, I can get a hot dog and a can of Monster um, and I could get a slice of pizza for three or four quid. Um, and that's what I have instead because I didn't like anything on the hot plate in, in the cookhouse that night. So those are the type of battles and things that we're looking into. But from a PT perspective, you know, we're already pushing some things and particularly with the testing as well. Not that we're going to change testing, but we're certainly looking at it through through a keen eye because particularly with our SCR, I don't, I don't really feel it gives RAPTCIs and individuals something that is really accountable. Um, if somebody doesn't meet the standard and is an example of a med ball throw, um, what do I need to work on? Okay, the, the explosive power through, you know, pushing motion. Uh, am I going to acquire that via a bench, you know, bench press, press up based elements or, or exercises to get them there? Um, if, if I do, what's the so what of that? How do I hold them to account? If I do hold them to account, I can't manage that for three to 400 people if they all fail an element. It becomes very difficult. So um, we're looking at these type of things. Um, and it's really exciting to work with them because they've got a vast knowledge of, of experience. And it's nice to put that, you know, my lack of academic experience, having just walked out of an MSc, um, with my military knowledge to put to their exposure and experience and research and other stuff. And um, I, there's a few stokes in the fire, but I don't think anything will come out for for 12 months. I, I'm not saying everything's sort of very low key because um, it's certainly not. I just think um, when we get moving and gain some traction on some projects, I think I think more will come out. And it's making sure, of course, that it works for for most of the demographic of, of the military population. It's not going to work for everybody. One size won't fit all, of course. But um, if, if we can hit a lot of parties, I think that'll be a win for us. I don't know if you know this yet from listening to our previous episodes, but you've definitely just triggered Drew and I'll give him a chance to ask the question he wants to so badly in a second. I'm dying inside right now. Before <laughs> before he gets that opportunity, I just want to do a quick verification one just so I understand it. Is Edge then, is it like civilian contracted subject matter experts that are there kind of as advisors to RAPTCIs and commanders? And then what professions specifically would you expect to see in an Edge team? So within our team, um, they are not advising so they can advise the commander they can you know we can give we basically bounce off of each other um 
in my space, if I didn't want any advice from the edge team, you know, they are all civilian, um, come from various backgrounds, um, and without naming names, we've got a guy in nutrition who um, has got an extensive background working in in defense nutrition, you know, across the MOD. Guys involved with strength and conditioning, sleep hygiene, psych, um, really qualified guys uh, and a great team. Now, if I didn't want to embrace what they're conducting or areas that we can improve within PT, you know, the PT domain, um, I could potentially say, as I'm not interested, um, I, I think what I do here and the way we conduct our business is good and proper. Um, I don't want to embrace any change. I'm quite defensive. I feel like you're um, potentially scrutinizing what I'm doing um, and could be on the back foot slightly. They could go to the commander and say, look, the QMSI PT is thwarting us and not really enable us to do our job. Um, and I might get told to get back in my box. However, if I could justify reasons why I would, however, we certainly don't have that relationship where I am. And, um, I'm, if anything, more onto the team about projects and jobs that I feel could help us and help our soldiers. Um, I'm throwing a lot of work at them and they're very much, yeah, keep it coming, keep it coming because they have the expertise to, you know, come up with wins or, or areas to develop the research that I particularly don't have through through the experience side. Um, but, you know, their academic experience, my military experience condensed to one really does help and push us in the right direction, I think. I'm a little disappointed in myself for not having thought of this until you were just sort of talking about it. And if, if again, if you've listened to any of our episodes, you will have known that one of our main side quests is to dismantle the American military's nutritional system, specifically AFES, um, which is, I don't even remember what the acronym stands for, Alex. Army. Army and Air Force Exchange Service. And it's not all of AFES. It's specifically <clears throat> that they empower fast food organizations. To my, my, the, the hill I will die on here is that, <laughs> um, the, the military, I mean, there's fast food installations on every military, every military base. And the justification we have heard from literally the top down is like, oh, well, you know, soldiers have freedom of choice, blah, 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 blah. blah. But I, I, for me, at least I, I cannot put that next to, the obesity statistics, the failure, the PT failure statistics and and make it make sense. And so I'm curious for you guys. I mean, I, I, I like I said, I went to grad school overseas. I've, I've been around the British military a little bit. I haven't spent a ton of time on British military installations, but what does the nutrition conversation look like? And if a, say Burger King wanted to infiltrate that, do you guys have the teeth to say no? Or does it become like, too bad, we're going to put Burger King on there because we're going to make a lot of money? I don't think any fast food chain would want to jump into a ministry, a ministry establishment. Um, I don't think it would be fruitful enough because I know our, you know, our barracks compared to yours are quite considerably smaller. Um, although garrison wise, you know, we have a couple of garrisons that probably house 10 to 20,000 soldiers um, that, that probably would benefit. However, the contracts held by the military are very much delegated to um, civilian companies that aren't involved in fast food chains uh, and more bespoke on, you know, providing a service um, and providing a good service. And the people that sit at the top of making these decisions are the majority former military, you know, high ranking uh, officers that perhaps see a wider picture. However, the, the contracts might always be fit for purpose. So here's but one example. Old money 
you used to have an X amount of money that would come out of your month uh, wage every month. And I don't know if this was the same for you. I'm talking 20, 15, 20 years ago here. So say £100 a month would come out for food. And that you were three square meals every day, you know, roof over your head, the normal stuff we associate. Um, and the food was fantastic. You'd eat as much as you want. Um, the options were great. We had military chefs. Um, so, you know, they were developing themselves and had a real quest for, you know, you were living with them. So if the food was rubbish, you'd go back to your accommodation <laughs> block late at night and go, that was awful. Like, come on, tomorrow's got to be better. Um, so, you know, that that was that was a great, you know, generally a great period. Um, we then went to pay as you dine. So it got taken over by a civilian contractor. Mm. And the food opportunities were perhaps not as fruitful. Um, and this will cause a little bit of a stir, I've no doubt, within the military population of the British Army, but most might agree with the fact that... Please, stir away. You know, the quantity of good food provided um, for young, adolescent, growing soldiers in particular that utilise it more than the seniors like me who will eat in the messes um, or at home, you know, be, or bring your own food in because you're married or, you know, etc. Um, I just don't think... For value for money, it's great. You know, it really is good. You know, the the, the food is really um, not, not really accessible. Um, the cost is low, pretty low, but the quality at times can be um, not the greatest. Um, and there are a couple of military forums that, you know, get hammered by the soldiers and social media um, pages that get hammered. They'll take a picture of their meal. They'll put it on social media and go, is this what the army are feeding us? And sometimes, you know, those choices are not a fair reflection of what might be available that day. Um, but in particular, you know, we, I've gone down here in the edge team I'm working with are the same. The healthy options are towards the back. The stuff at the front is the little bit more pricey burger chips, fish and chips, um, you know, whatever it might be, lasagna, pasta based stuff, which, you know, as as its uses, depending on what you've done and, you know, calorie deficits, what you've taken that day, PT, etc. But they're not always adhered to. And sometimes for the youngsters going through, you know, we'll look at some of the meals and go, I don't fancy that. I just don't think is enough. If I had a chicken breast um, and a small portion of potatoes and that's my meal and that's what I'm allowed because that's what the contract says um, and we're looking into these contracts and they are very elusive and that's not just coming from me, that's from the EDGE team and other uh, members within our regiment that deal with the catering specifically, show me what this contract looks like because this food at times is not acceptable, mm -hmm. could be better um, and the contract is very much money-orientated because it's not, you know, it's not a military con company that are dealing with it. Mm -hmm. You know, they might be providing a million pounds worth of food a day, but the contract might be they're making two million a day, you know, and, and that's a real exaggeration. Um, to, I'm simplistic, I know, but, you know, the reason these contracts are in and given to civil servant organisations or civilian companies is because it's a profit margin. And without a profit margin, it's, they wouldn't be in business. So, mm -hmm. um, I, and I know that can be quite... Um, quite controversial what i'm saying but the majority of people particularly in my shoes and time of service would, would probably agree with that and it's difficult to see um because a lot of the kids on pt is but one example first question is everyone eating this morning has everybody eaten today has everybody um taken on sufficient hydration and i get the classic yeah yes we've done that sir yeah of course we have somebody goes down got no energy why not i didn't eat this morning in the cookhouse why not or that I didn't want to fill English breakfast and do PT. I didn't want porridge. I didn't want this, you know, or whatever. All English breakfast so, is so good too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it becomes, it becomes quite challenging and I'm not a huge fan of the contracts um, through my own experiences, but um, 
I'm not saying they're dreadful, but they could definitely be better. That's for sure. Particularly the healthier options. Mm. But when you're 17 and you've got a metabolism where you burn things off, you know, walking around um, compared to being a little bit older and having to run around a lot more to burn it off. Um, you know, what would I have chosen? And I know I certainly probably would have not been as healthy all of the time. Um, but we certainly don't have a massive issue with obese soldiers, you know, from a, from a physical training perspective, um, obesity isn't huge in the British army. Um, when we manage it really early via the, the BCM, um, you know, where we body composite measurement people, um, ensure that their waistline is in line with their weight, height, et cetera. And it's not just the BMI standard that, you know, doesn't always represent fairness, particularly mm -hmm. with you know, rugby players or squat power, power-based sports people. Um, so, I think we manage it to an extent pretty well, but certainly the food contracting is something that we continue to look at. And I don't think it's going to change for another decade. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's all, it's all financially pushed. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like we have some, some similar struggles on that one. Um, I do this kind of, we kind of indirectly answered the question I was about to ask because of it. So we'll leave nutrition off to the side as I ask this and talk about really like the physical component of it and the education of RAPTCIs and PTIs and things like that. I don't know, you might have a different perspective on this, but a lot of what we heard from you today sounds like things are nearly perfect for you guys, right? Like you have the, a nice long education pipeline. You've got a lot of things in place. There's a lot of adherence. A lot of it seems figured out. And maybe that's because your army is smaller than ours and there's a lot of differences there, but we'd, we'd love to hear a little bit about kind of what the, what the struggles and the downsides are that you guys are trying to work through as an organization and improve on just so we don't feel so bad about how far behind we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, you know, we're certainly far from perfect. And, um, you know, of course I'm going to look through things with, with rote into glasses slightly because it's my organization and I'm passionate about it. Um, but there are definite hindrances and issues that we have and, and workforce is one, you know, we've cut back from 120, 130,000 from when I first joined. You know, we're now down to nearly 75, you know, 70,000 people um, and the capacity to do more or do the same with less is the same. And I'm sure it's very similar um, in the US military. Um, infrastructure is a massive problem for us. You know, shared gymnasia is a massive issue. Um, and here's but one example. I have um, three units that are in my building and we are the custodian unit. So we get more or less priority because we have, you know, phase two soldiers, you know, recruits in essence. Um but I've got three units, four subunits per unit. So that's 12 groups of people that want to do PT. And I think your mantra was 0630. And you were trying to find out where this had come from in the US Army, you know, 630 every day PT, you know, 08 to 09, every Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. Um, everybody wants the shop floor. Um, and for 12, 12 subunits, I can't do it. So got to be flexible. And what that means is you can have it for this time, Somebody could have it from nine till 10, somebody have it from 10 till 11, but that disturbs our day. It's not my problem. You're going to have to deal with that. It's your chain of commands problem. You know, you work it out and then you come back to me because I manage this facility, et cetera, et cetera. So infrastructure is one and um, physical training equipment was another one, but that's certainly on the up. Um, you know, we changed our modality from loaded March training, running and very much resistance-based PT circuit stuff, which was, you know, arms, trunks, legs, traditionally, press-ups, sit-ups, knees to chest, burpees, no equipment, limited strength, limited power. Um, and now we've gone, you know, full circle when it's like walking into, you know, we can like your American football gyms, you know, where it's just rack after rack after rack. And 
you know, particularly at our place, we're exactly the same. We've got one massive long wall that's got 12 racks back to back, all in the line, kit and equipment's prepared, um, and it can be used by anybody at any time. So we're certainly moving in the right direction with that. But it certainly still is a constraint, you know, the infrastructure and the equipment we have to use. Um, testing is one. So one thing we're really looking at with the edge team is the test for the SCR and the RFT. Now, um, as as you've looked through and mentioned, it's where are the comparables? The SCR is components of fitness, but not all of them imitate the RFT, which is what we're holding people to account on when we want to test them and make sure they're fit for role and purpose. Um I think within our SCR, do I care how far someone can sit in front of a med ball? I couldn't care less. How much do I care about somebody being able to sprint 100 metres in X amount of seconds? Uh, I'm not really that interested. Um, what, what, what do I want to know? I want to know if somebody's strong enough to pull their own body weight and mount a wall or mount an obstacle via the heaves. That's what I want to know. Via the deadlift process, I want to know that they have you know, a range of movement and they're able to pick things up off the floor in a safe manner, using correct form, and they have some amount of lower body strength. Yeah, I want to know that. And 2K, a 2K run. I want to know if they can shift their body at a particular pace and maintain it for that distance. Out of our SCR, most RAPTC instructors in my shoes would go, that's all I want to know. And if we can test people on those three elements, the rest of it is kind of uh, long jump, broad jump. Or, uh, yeah, great. Okay, it tests something as a component of fitness, but what am I going to do with that? want to do with that information so i think there's still a lot of work to do to marry up these two assessments with the scr and rft um the rft is again really restricting in the equipment that we use and the amount of people we can take at any one time you know with an aft the old eight miler we used to do i would have 200 people on parade with their bergens we weighed them all off we go and it might be me and three other ptis that, that deliver that but in two hours i've tested 200 people and um, the RFT to deliver the whole thing from start to finish is about three and a half to four hours. Um, and it's time constraining. And because I've only got X amount of power bags, X amount of drag bags, et cetera, for, for the representative military tasks, I can only take a wave about 15 or 20 at any one time. So, you know, we now duplicate that into waves. I've got 10 waves now. It's taken me six to seven hours to get, to get the same amount of people through. So, you know, there's real constraints to that, which doesn't help us. Um, but given that at the minute we're, we're riding the crest of the, the wave and, you know, a lot of us feel PTIs and RAPTCIs, you know, we've gone through, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. We, we've now left, um, you know, in the main, we've, we've left those two, those two areas and we're now testing what we were doing there. What, what, what's the next? We don't know. And we yeah, can't we're fighting the last that. war. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it, it's the classic you know, we still do a lot of military training from what we were doing in the Cold War, you know, so digging in shell scrapes, et cetera. And um, yeah, of course, there's a place for that. And, you know, you've only got to look at the war in Ukraine to see that, you know, there are a lot of shell scrapes and places being dug and tunnels everywhere that, that there's a requirement for that to be done. But, um, you know, from a fitness test element, what's the, what's the now? What's the here and now? And uh, hopefully we don't fall behind with that. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, we want to be respectful of your time. And obviously, given the time difference, it's much later there for you than it is for us. But um, one, thank you for coming on. Two, thank you for being the unofficial spokesperson of the entire British military. Uh, We appreciate that. And then three, next time we have you on here, both Alex and I will be in our physical training core uh, 
I forget what you called them, but our tank tops, basically. So uh, <laughs> thanks again for coming on the show. seeing us. that show. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Guys, thank you very much. Really yeah. appreciate it. And have a, uh, have a great evening. Hey, Alex. Let's cover our ass real quick. Oh, great idea, Drew. All right, guys. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before you go, please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice. You can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter in, mos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. Just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can, at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and receive future updates from us. The blog posts go a little bit more in depth and kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com. Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank you.